Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko. Welcome to another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is a special edition. Uh, there will be no commercial content in today's show. I am going to be talking about a video that went out uh, from a panel of doctors yesterday on the Breitbart News Channel on YouTube. Uh, those doctors put out a series of videos. They are all fantastic and all amazing. One of the videos that I believe was the most powerful video was then subsequently taken down by YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'm going to come up front with this today and explain to you what I'm going to be doing, how I'm going to be doing it, why I'm going to be doing it, and the significant risk that I'm taking by doing this. All of these platforms um, have made statements that they would remove content and or people who say anything that directly conflicts with, with what the World Health Organization uh, or the CDC says. Now, I think that Anybody with common sense should understand how dangerous that is. That what's dangerous isn't people presenting findings and information and opinions that are counter to uh, a mainstream narrative. It is those people being silenced. That's dangerous. For me, it's uniquely dangerous. Because I do not believe for a second that, um, that Apple might not do the same thing. And my podcast is distributed mostly through Apple Podcasts. I also have a significant presence on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And as we've seen recently, people have been mass banned. And I am risking being mass banned um, on all the social media platforms and being banned from this platform. If you're listening to this today and you've never heard of me before and you've never heard my podcast before, you probably won't really get how big of a risk that is. I've been podcasting full-time for 11 years. I've been doing the show for 12. It is my full-time income. It is how I feed my family. It's how I pay for my home. It's how I pay all my bills. It is my career. I am literally risking my career today by bringing you this information because they've already deplatformed people for less. I am also making a statement to any of these organizations that would do this to me. I have willingly stated that I will come on to your platform and I will debate anybody on this subject in a professional debate, a debate with an independent third-party moderator with rules. And I don't have a college degree. I'm not a doctor. If, if I'm wrong, and if these doctors you're about to hear from are wrong, then go get yourself a, a Harvard MD. Let's have this discussion and prove me wrong. And when you prove me wrong, when you conclusively prove that what I'm telling you is not true today, then I will say I was wrong. And I will say, good job. Great. You brought me data I didn't have. You brought me information I didn't know. You showed me where I was wrong. That's how science is supposed to work. But sadly, that's not how science is working. That's not how it's working today. It's not how it's been working for a while. But in this case, these doctors came forward and they are risking their careers they're risking their futures. I believe they're risking their safety. We have another doctor that's already come out and said he was, he was physically threatened over this. And this is all about whether or not a drug that has been used for over six decades is safe to use. That's what this is about. Whether a drug that the Department of Veteran Affairs uses 67,000 doses a day is safe to use or not. You can get to efficacy second. The, the debate is whether it's safe or not. That's the real debate. There's claims that this stuff kills people. 
I was in the United States military. I took this drug consistently for six months as a malarial preventative. It did not kill me. It didn't kill anybody else that I know of. There are thousands upon thousands of people that have things like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus that take this drug consistently. They're not exactly the healthiest people in the world with, with very little to no side effects. By the numbers, this drug is safer than aspirin or Tylenol. We know that much about this drug, and yet you've been told it's dangerous. I don't want to say any more, though. I want to let these doctors speak. Their voice is more important than mine today. What you're about to hear is about um, 30 minutes of video conference. Uh, again, it was done by Breitbart News. What I will be doing is I will simply be playing it, and at certain points, there are things that I think are incredibly important and should not be glossed over. I will break in. I will give some commentary on those, and I will go back to that exact moment that I broke it and let those doctors continue to speak. I implore you to listen to this today. I implore you to share this today. Um, I implore you to make sure that other people listen to it. I have found that it is easier to get somebody to listen to something in audio because they can listen to it while they do something else than it is to get them to sit down and watch a video. Because you can go out and take a walk and listen to this. You can go out and work in your garden and listen to this. You can do weightlifting and listen to this. And the reason I'm breaking in with the commentary is because when people do that, they tend to miss really important things. What you're about to hear today should shock you. And I, I, I implore you as Americans to take up the cause that is really at stake here. It is not whether or not hydroxychloroquine is effective as a cure for COVID. That is not really the debate we need to have. The debate is when doctors and scientists bring findings forward, do they have a right to have a public discourse and public debate about their findings and their opinions, or do we have a right to simply silence that which we disagree with? And if you are 100% convinced that these doctors are wrong, you should still be 100% behind their right to be heard and a right to have this debated. Because science cannot work where one side is able to silence the other side. Everything that you learned in history, everything that you learned in history about science and medicine should tell you that. Every part of your being should tell you how dangerous it is, even if the, op op the opposition is wrong, to use silence instead of debate in response to that opposition. And everything intrinsic in your body for instinct should tell you that when people in power use silencing and memory hole, when the debate is based on facts and logic and reason, that they already know that they're wrong. And they already know they can't survive the intellectual argument. So let's go on. Today is July the 28th, 2020. What you're about to hear occurred in Washington, D.C. Um, yesterday on the 27th. It's one of the most important things um, that has ever been done in our, our adult life, that these doctors have risked everything. And again, they have taken this video down. It's available in different places. I will give you links in the notes for today's show where you can see the actual video, etc., and see that I haven't altered any of it. Um, but... They're risking everything, and I really implore you today, stand alongside them, even if you disagree with them. Stand alongside them with their right to be heard. And just before I do, I want to give full disclosure. Uh, the video begins with a congressman making a speech and introducing these doctors. I don't want anything about this to be political, and there is no possible way that any politician of any party can open his mouth without it being political. 
So I have, I have taken that off because what's important is that you hear from the doctors. You're about to hear from the first doctor that spoke, and everything you hear after this point will be a doctor speaking right up until the end, along with my commentary on it. Thank you so much, Congressman. So we're here because we feel as though the American people have not heard from all the expertise that's out there all across our country. We do have some experts speaking, but there's lots and lots of experts across the country. So some of us decided to get together. We're America's frontline doctors. We're here only to help American patients and the American nation heal. We have a lot of information to share. Americans are riveted and captured by fear at the moment. We are not held down by the virus as much as we're being held down by the spider web of fear. That spider web is all around us. And it's constricting us, and it's draining the lifeblood of the American people, American society, and American economy. This is not, this does not make sense. COVID-19 is a virus that exists in essentially two phases. There's the early phase disease, and there's the late phase disease. In the early phase, either before you get the virus, or early when you've gotten the virus, if you've gotten the virus, there's treatment. That's what we're here to tell you. We're going to talk about that this afternoon. You can find it on America's Frontline Doctors. There's many other sites that are streaming it live on Facebook. Okay, here's my first interruption, and this is going to be brief, but this is something that I've been, I've been telling my audience since March. The two stages of the illness should not be glossed over or overlooked. You can have the SARS-CoV-2 virus in your body and not develop symptoms. Everybody knows that. You can have it in your body and eventually develop mild or moderate symptoms, and you can have it in your body and eventually develop severe symptoms. COVID-19 is not the virus. The virus is COVID-SARS-2. There are two distinct phases of this illness. There is the infection by the virus phase, and then there is the full-blown dry pneumonia, life-threatening symptoms. That disease is what's called COVID-19. That's a medical scientific fact. Anybody upset by that, I don't care. If you do not get the treatment that these doctors are talking to, to the patient early in the illness, in the first phase, it is not going to be anywhere near as effective. That should make logical sense to anybody out there. How many other illnesses are there that work this way? Let's go back to the conference. But we implore you to hear this because this message has been silenced. There are many thousands of physicians who have been silenced from telling the American people the good news about the situation, that we can manage the virus carefully and intelligently, but we cannot live with this spider web of fear that's constricting our country. So we're going to hear now from various physicians. Some are going to talk to you about what the lockdown has done to young, to older, to businesses, to the economy, and how we can get ourselves out of the cycle of fear. Dr. Hamilton. Thank you, Simone, and thank you all for being here today. I'm Dr. Bob Hamilton. I'm a pediatrician from Santa Monica, California. I've been in private practice there for 36 years. And today I have good news for you. The good news is that children, as a general rule, are taking this virus very, very well. Few are getting infected. Those who are getting infected are being hospitalized in low numbers. And fortunately, the mortality rate 
of uh, children is about one-fifth of one percent. So kids are tolerating the infection very frequently. They're actually asymptomatic. I also want to say that children are not the drivers of, the, of this pandemic. People were worried about initially if children were going to actually be the ones to push the infection along. The very opposite is happening. Kids are being are, are tolerating it very well. They're not passing it on to their parents. They're not passing it on to their teachers. Dr. Mark Woolhouse from uh, from Scotland, who is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist, said the following. He said, there has not been one documented case of COVID being transferred from a student to a teacher in the world. In the world. I think that is important that all of us who are here today realize that our kids are not really the ones who are driving the infection. It is being driven by older individuals. And yes, we can send the kids back to school, I think, without fear. And this is the big issue right now, is, as Congressman Norman uh, alluded to, this is the really important thing we need to do. We need to normalize the lives of our children. How do we do that? We do that by getting them back in the classroom. And the good news is they're not driving this infection at all. Yes, we can use security measures. Yes, we can be careful. I'm all for that. We all are. But I think the important thing is we need to not act out of fear. We need to act out of science. We need to do it. We need to get it done. Finally, uh, the barrier, and I hate to say this, but the barrier to getting our kids back in school is not going to be the science. It's going to be the uh, national unions, the teachers' union, the National Education Association, other groups who are going to demand money. And listen, I think that it's fine to get people money for PPE and different things in the classroom, but some of their demands are really ridiculous. They're talking about where I'm from in California, the UTLA, which is the United Teachers of Los Angeles, is demanding that we defund the police. What does that have to do with education? They're demanding that they stop or they shut all private uh, charter schools, uh, privately funded charter schools. These are the schools that are actually getting the kids educated. So clearly there are going to be barriers. The barriers will not be science. There will not be uh, barriers for the sake of the children. It's going to be for the sake of the adults, uh, the teachers, and everybody else, and for the union. So that's where we need to focus our efforts and fight back. So thank you all for being here, and uh, let's get our kids back in school. Hello, um, I'm Dr. Stella Emanuel. I'm a primary care physician in Houston, Texas. You know, um, I actually uh, went to medical school in West Africa, Nigeria, where I took care of malaria patients, treated them with hydroxychloroquine and stuff like that. So I'm actually used to these medications. I'm here because I have personally treated over 350 patients with COVID. Patients that have diabetes, patients that have high blood pressure, patients that have um, asthma, all people. I think my oldest patient is 92, 87 year olds. And the result has been the same. I put them on hydroxychloroquine, I put them on zinc, I put them on Zitromax, and they are all well. For the past few months, I've taken care of over 350 patients. We've not lost one. Not a diabetic, not a somebody with high blood pressure, not somebody with asthma, not an old person. We've not lost one patient. And on top of that, I've put myself 
my staff and many doctors that I know on hydroxychloroquine for prevention because by the very mechanism of action, it works early and as a prophylaxis. We see patients, 10 to 15 COVID patients every day. We give them breathing treatments. We only wear surgical masks. None of us has gotten sick. It works. So right now, I, I came here to Washington, D.C. to say, America, nobody needs to die. The, 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 the study that made me start using hydroxychloroquine was a study that they did in, under the NIH in 2005. That say it works. Recently, I was doing some research about a patient that had hiccups, and I found out that they even did a recent study in the NIH, which is our national institute, um, that is the, the national, NIH, national Institute of, of Health. They actually had a study, I'm going to look it up, type hiccups and COVID, you will see it. They treated a patient that had hiccups with hydroxychloroquine, and it proved that COVID is a symptom of, hydrox of, of uh, hiccups, it's a symptom of, of COVID. So if the NIH knows that treating the patient with hydroxychloroquine proves that hiccup is a symptom of COVID, then they definitely know that hydroxychloroquine works. I'm upset. Why I'm upset is that I see people that cannot breathe. I see parents walk in. I see diabetics sit in my office knowing that this is a death sentence and they can't breathe. And I hug them and I tell them, it's going to be okay. You're going to leave. And we treat them and they leave. None has died. So if some fake science, some person sponsored by all these fake pharma companies comes out and say, oh, we've done studies and they found out that it doesn't work, I can tell you categorically it's fake science. I want to know who is sponsoring that study. I want to know who is behind it. Because there is no way I can treat 350 patients and counting and nobody is dead and they all did better. And then you're going to tell me that you treated 20 people, 40 people and, and it didn't work. I'm a true testimony. So I came here to Washington, D.C. to tell America, nobody needs to get sick. This virus has a cure. It is called hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and zitromax. I know people want to talk about masks. Hello? You don't need masks. There is a cure. I know they don't want to open schools. No, you don't need to, people to be locked down. There is prevention and there is a cure. And let me tell you something. All you fake doctors out there that tell me, oh, yeah, I want a double-blinded study. I just tell you, squeeze sounding like a computer, double-blinded, double-blinded. I don't know whether your chips are malfunctioning, but I'm a real doctor. I have radiologists. We have plastic surgeons. We have neurosurgeons like Sanjay Gupta saying, oh, yeah, it doesn't work and it causes heart disease. Let me ask you, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, hear me. Have you ever seen a COVID patient? Have you ever treated anybody with hydroxychloroquine and they died from heart disease? When you do, come and talk to me. Because I sit down in my clinic every day and I see these patients walk in every day, scared to, scared to death. I see people driving two, three hours to my clinic because some ER doctor is scared of the Texas board or they are scared of something and they will not prescribe medication to these people. I tell all of you doctors that are sitting down and watching Americans die. You're like the good Nazis, the good what? The good Germans that watch Jews get killed and you do not speak up. If they come after me, they threaten me. They've threatened to, I mean, I've gotten all kinds of threats. Oh, they're going to report me to the boards. They're going to, I say, you know what? I don't care. I'm not going to let Americans die. And if this is the mountain, if this is the hill where I get nailed on, I will get nailed on it. I don't care. You can report me to the board. You can kill me. You can do whatever. But I'm not going to let Americans die. And today I'm here to say it, that America, there is a cure for COVID. All this foolishness, it's not, does not need to happen. There is a cure for COVID. 
there is a cure for COVID. It's called hydroxychloroquine. It's called zinc. It's called Zitromax. And it is time for the grassroots to wake up and say, no, we're not going to take this any longer. We're not going to die. Because let me tell you something. When somebody is dead, they are dead. They are not coming back tomorrow to have an argument. They are not coming back tomorrow to discuss the double-blinded study and the data. All of you doctors that are waiting for data, if six months down the line you actually found out that this data shows that this medication works, how about your patients that have died? You want a double-blinded study where people are dying? It's unethical. So, guys, we don't need to die. There is a cure for COVID. Dr. Emmanuel, also known as Warrior. Uh, before I introduce the next guest, I just want to say that I wish all doctors that are listening to this bring that kind of passion to their patients. And the study that Dr. Emmanuel was referring to is in virology, which talks about a SARS uh, viral epidemic that affects the lungs that came from China. And they didn't know what would work. The study showed that chloroquine would work. It sounds exactly like it could have been written three months ago, but in fact, that study in virology, which was published by the NIH, the National Institute of Health, when Dr. Anthony Fauci was the director, again, the official publication of the NIH, virology, 15 years ago showed that chloroquine, we use hydroxychloroquine, it's the same, a little safer, works. They proved this 15 years ago when we got this novel coronavirus, which is not that novel. It's 78% similar to the prior version, the COVID-1. Not surprisingly, it works. I'm now going to introduce our next speaker. Sorry, I forgot to say oh, your name. It's all right. Sorry. Uh, Dr. Dan Erickson. Uh, Dr. Gold asked me to talk about the lockdowns, how effective they were, and do they cause anything non-financial? They always talk about the financial, but you have to realize that lockdowns, we haven't taken a $21 trillion economy and locked it down. So when you lock it down, it causes public health issues. Our suicide hotlines are up 600%. Our spousal abuse, different areas of alcoholism are all on the rise. These are public health problems from a financial lockdown. So we have to be clear on that fact that there is, it's not like you just lock it down and have consequences to the people's jobs. They also have consequences, health consequences at home. So we're, you know, we're talking about having a little more of a measured approach, a consistent approach. If we have another spike, you know, coming in cold and flu season, let's do something that's sustainable. What's sustainable? Well, we can, uh, we can socially distance and wear some masks, but we can also open the schools and open businesses. So this measured approach I'm talking about isn't made up. It's going on in Sweden. And their deaths are about 564 per million. UK, full lockdown, 600 deaths per million. So we're seeing that the lockdowns aren't decreasing significantly the amount of deaths per million. Some of their Nordic neighbors have less deaths for a variety of reasons I don't have time to go into today. So what my quick message here in a minute or two is just that we need to take an approach that's sustainable. A sustainable approach is slowing things down, opening up schools, opening up businesses, and then we can allow the people to have their independence and their personal responsibility to choose to wear masks and socially distance. As opposed to putting edicts on them, you know, kind of uh, controlling them, let's empower them with data 
and let them study what other countries have done and make their own decision. That's what I'd like to share. Thank you. So the little bit that I would like to commentate on with that is the demands being made by teachers' unions across the country, which are similar to what the uh, unions in California are doing, are demands that they know will not be met. And so I don't care politically where you stand on them. Personally, for full disclosure, I'm happy to see the schools say shut down for as long as possible. I've been an advocate for homeschooling families for about a decade now, and I believe that what's going on is creating more and more homeschoolers. So I'm I'm okay with it. I'm not taking that side of this this issue. But what I do like to do is observe how the parties in any sort of situation are responding. And I will tell you that when any party makes demands that they wholly know to be unreasonable and wholly know to be disconnected from the issue at hand, it is not because they expect that this is a good time to make those demands so that they'll get them. They know that this is a good time to make those demands because those demands will impede progress. And the only reason you would make demands like this as a teacher's union is you want schools to stay closed. They're not doing it because they actually believe they have the ability to get these things done. And you should take that into context when you consider this issue. Let's go on more with the actual science behind the illness itself. Are there any questions? Are there any questions? Who are you guys? We are so excited. Well, I'm from South Dakota. Yes. Yeah, so I'm so glad you guys are preaching this message. You know, South Dakota did something interesting, and it's interesting that you're from there. So the governor did not restrict access to hydroxychloroquine. We know. We took right. a lot of flack for that. Right. And you were, I, I believe you were the only state in the union that did that. And um, there's been studies out there that attempt to show that it doesn't work. They're inaccurate because they're given at the wrong time, the wrong dose, the wrong patient, either too much or at the long time. So South Dakota did better because it had access to hydroxychloroquine. Thank you so much. Okay, so if we, someone we love does get sick with COVID, and you said that we're, the, the hydrochloroquine or whatever, how you say it, is restricted, how do we get access to that? That's the number one question we're all asked every day. I want you to know that you're not alone. I've had many congressmen ask me, how can I get it? So if the congressman can't get it, it's tough luck for the average American Joe getting it. It's very difficult. You have to overcome a few hurdles. Your doctor has to have read the science with a critical eye and have eliminated the junk science. Many studies have been retracted, as you know. And number two, the pharmacist has to not restrict it. Many states have empowered their pharmacists to not honor physician prescription. That's never happened before. That interference with the doctor-patient relationship, where the patient talks to the doctor honestly and the doctor answers the patient honestly, has been violated. So you have a very difficult time as the average American. Some of the information we'll share later this afternoon is to show the mortality rates in countries where it's not restricted and the mortality rates where it is restricted. So I have friends all over the world now because of this. And in Indonesia, You can just buy it over the counter. It's in the vitamin section. And I'm here to tell the American people that you can buy it over the counter in Iran because the leaders in Iran, the mullahs in Iran, think that they should have more freedom than Americans. I have a problem with that. My, my colleagues have problems with that. We don't like to watch patients die. So it's just something I want to drive home right here, uh, and I also want to tell you something that I'm doing. So the, the questions from the crowd are not on the microphone of the speakers, so I am amping those as much as I can without full distortion for you so you can sort of hear what they're asking. But I want you to think about what's being discussed here. Basically, these doctors who have every right to prescribe this medication anytime they want for something like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, a medication that is available in many countries over-the-counter that has been safely prescribed by doctors and used over-the-counter in many places for over 60 years, Americans are being denied the right to access to this medication that is generally recognized as safe. 
You live in a country where you're being denied access to a generally recognized as safe medication and your doctor is being prohibited from prescribing it. And I know of cases where the doctor has prescribed it and the pharmacists have refused to fill it. This is not America. Let's go back to the conference. And their federal representatives and senators and say, we are the American people and we demand. Let me say one thing. You guys need the public to be the school. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. That is exactly right. Um, if you hear what you're, when you hear this, if you're concerned and wondering why you may not be able to get access to it, we need you to make four calls. Call your governor. Call both of your senators and call your congressman and tell them that you want to know why you're not able to get access to a drug that doctors are telling you will help end this and help us reduce the number of hospitalizations and reduce the number of deaths. Urge them to read Dr. Harvey Risch's study from Yale. He's a Yale professor of epidemiology, and from there you'll find other studies. Yes. I wanted to ask, how, how do people trust the data that they're looking at every day? The numbers are so variable when you go to Johns Hopkins, the CDC, which divides COVID deaths in different categories, you know, yeah. it's related to pneumonia, other things. So how do, how do we get the right information to make decisions? So the only number that I think is worth paying any attention to, and even that number is not so helpful, but is mortality, because that's a hard and fast number. So the case number is almost irrelevant. And that's because there's a lot of inaccuracies with the testing. And also, even if the test is accurate, most people are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. So it's not that important to know. So the case number, which you see rising all the time in the news, is basically irrelevant. And if you had told us a few months ago that that was the number that the media was going to go crazy over, we all would have just laughed at that. I mean, that's essentially herd immunity. There's lots of people out there who have tested positive without symptoms or with very mild symptoms. So the only number that's worth paying attention to is mortality. When you look at the mortality, this is a disease that takes that unfortunately kills our most frail members of society. People with multiple comorbid conditions, specifically diabetes, obesity, is a big one. We don't talk about that, but it is. It's a fact. Um, coronary artery disease, severe coronary artery disease, people like that. And also, if you're older, it's a risk factor. But the biggest risk factor is if you have comorbid conditions. If you're young and healthy, this is not you're going to recover. If you're under 60 with no comorbid conditions, it's less deadly than influenza. This seems to come as great news to Americans because this is not what you're being told. Um, I would say the answer is it's very difficult to get accurate numbers. <laughs> if you, uh, this is Matt Purdy of Breitbart News, if you had a message to Dr. Anthony Fauci, what would you say to him? Listen to the doctors. We Listen to the frontline yeah. doctors. Have a meeting with the frontline doctors. And maybe I need to say that into the microphone. My message to Dr. Anthony Fauci is to have a meeting with these frontline doctors who are seeing real patients. They're touching human skin. They're looking people in the eye. They're diagnosing them, and they're helping them beat the virus. They're the ones who are talking to the patients. Have meetings with them and do it every single day and find out what they are learning about the virus firsthand. And this is, and it's important to understand, we have doctors here who are not emergency room doctors. They're preventing doctor, preventing patients from even hitting the emergency room. So if they're only listening to emergency room or ICU at the very tragic 
end of a person's life, they're, they're not getting the full story. They need to come back and hear the earlier, the earlier portion, and they also need to understand what the lockdowns and the fears are doing to, to patients around this country because there are a lot of unintended consequences which the doctors can speak about. So the question to ask yourself, America, is why wouldn't the people making all the policy decisions want to talk to the doctors who are having success keeping the patients out of the hospital? Why would they only talk to the doctors, if, if much of that at all, of the ones who are treating the end stage of the illness? Wouldn't it be really important to actually have the voices of the doctors treating the patients heard? You won't hear about this today, but there was a doctor that came out very early on in New York. This was an ICU doctor at that end stage. And he came out and he said on YouTube, I've been doing this a long time. I've treated pneumonia a long time. I have never seen anything like this before. I think we need to change what we're doing with ventilators. I think running ventilators on these patients at full pressure is killing them. They took his videos down. Do you want to live in a country where a doctor that's actively treating patients cannot be heard, has their voice silenced? Do you want to live in a, in a country where your doctor who's treating you successfully can't be heard and has to fear that his license will be taken from him? Do you want to live in a country where your doctor is prevented from prescribing a medication to you that's been used for six decades safely? Do you want to live in that country? Because you do. You do, and it's up to you whether you do something to change it or not. Um, you heard so far today in this that everybody should call their senators and their congressmen and ask why we don't have access to these drugs. I'm the most anti-political person you know. I actually classify myself as a voluntarist. I don't believe in the legitimacy of the state. But I also know how the system works. And I haven't asked anybody in my audience for at least eight years to pick up the phone and call their government to talk to their representatives and to tell them what they want. I'm asking you to do it now, because if you won't do it now, when will you? And even though I'm not a big believer in the political system, I do know that politicians, politicians are highly motivated by how people respond to things. And right now is the time to let your voice be heard. The doctor you're about to hear from next is my new hero. This woman should be a champion of the media. She is everything the media claims to want. She's a female doctor. She's an immigrant from Africa. She's black. This would be the person that they should be championing. They are already assassinating her character for speaking her opinion as to what the truth is. You're about to hear now from this woman, and you're going to hear during her speaking the reason that this video was banned from YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and the reason all of these doctors that you're hearing today in this particular video had their voices silenced instead of stood up and then said, hey, let's have a legitimate debate in the court of science. Here you go. My message to Dr. Anthony Fauci is, when is the last time you put a stethoscope on a patient? That when you start seeing patients, like we see on a daily basis, you will understand the frustration that we feel. And you need to start feeling for American people like we, the frontline doctors, feel. And you need to start re realizing that. They are listening to you. And if they are going to listen to you, you got to give them a message of hope. you got to give them a message that goes with what you already know, that hydroxychloroquine works. Okay, I actually have a question for uh, Dr. Warrior. Uh, Dr. Emanuel. Dr. Emanuel. Uh, you mentioned before some uh, remarkable results that you've had uh, treating your own patients. You said 
We're working on publishing it right now. We're working on that. But this is what I'll say. People like doctors tell me all the time, publish the data. And my question is, and that will make you see patients? There's enough data around the world. Yes, my data will come out. When that comes out, that's great. But right now, people are dying. So my data is not important for you to see patients. I'm saying that to my colleagues out there that talk about data, data, data. May I just interject? There is a lot There's of, a lot of data, data out there. on this. Not every clinician needs to publish their the data, data to yes. be taken seriously. The media has not covered it. There is a ton. I've got a compendium on America's Frontline Doctors.com. Yep. There is a compendium of all the studies that work with hydroxychloroquine. The mortality rate was published in Detroit less mm-hmm. than a month. It was July 4th weekend. They published it. Mortality by half in the in the critically ill patients. Mm-hmm. The patients who um, are get it early, it's been estimated that one half to three quarters of those patients wouldn't be dead. We're talking 70,000 to 105, uh, 70 to 100,000 patients would still be alive if, if we had followed this policy. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of published data. I'm sorry. Even with it's Dr. Rich, Dr. Rich published data recently, so there's a lot of data out there. They don't need mine to make those decisions. If I can ask one more question. Yeah. There was a little girl who just a few days ago was nine years old, otherwise healthy, and it was reported that she died of COVID 19. So I was curious. As from your perspective, do you feel that this little girl possibly died from some other condition that was wrongly attributed to COVID-19, or is there some other reason why she would have died from COVID-19? I will not, I will not be able to say that till I look at the little girl's literature, little girl's um, history and whatever happened. I know I've taken care of a lot of family members, and I and I see a lot of children, and they usually get mild symptoms. But I cannot talk about a case that I've not looked let me, at. Let me, let me what was the age of the child again? She was nine years old. Okay. So, listen, there are children who are dying of this infection. And the reality is that when they do die, they seem to have comorbidities. Really, you have to kind of look at the each individual uh, case uniquely. There have been a little over 30 patients in the entire country in the age category of 15 and below who have died of COVID. Frequently, they do have comorbidities like heart disease. They have asthma. They have other pulmonary issues. So... I don't know. We don't know the answer to this nine-year-old girl, tragically. She passed, and she's no longer with us. But um, <clears throat> there is probably, if you dig into it, there's probably a story behind it. Dr. Hamilton, have you seen any patients who are having adverse side effects because schools have been closed of depression or suicide? I mean, I, I think that is, it is common knowledge that the with the schools not... Uh, not being open. When you think about what your experience in junior high and high school, what do you think about? You think about parties and you think about football games, socializing. Those are the things we think about. Those are all being shut down, folks. Nobody is, nobody's having fun anymore. And I, I will tell you that these are critical years of life to be out and mixing with other kids, other people, and that has been shut down. So, yes, there are lots of comorbidities uh, that go along with shutting down. We're talking about anxiety. We're talking about depression, loneliness, uh, abuse is happening. Uh, and kids who have particular uh, children who have special needs kids are not doing well either. So there is a long list of complications that occur when you quarantine and lock down people. So an extension to, to what you were just talking about, we hear all these studies, all this polling that moms are afraid to go back to work because of letting their children go to school. They should go to school because they're going to be exposed. And if the moms go back to school, then the elderly grandparents, they're Right. Well, you know, this is the big... 
Sure. Yeah, this is a big issue because people are afraid, to, not that their children are, are going to get particularly ill, because I think they're learning the, the truth that, that this infection is, is being tolerated well by children, but certainly they look at their environment, their particular unique family, and I think in some situations that may be an appropriate fear. However, I do think that uh, as a general comment, a general rule through the country, kids can go back to school. Maybe a few kids here and there, they, you know, their living situation, who they're being cared for, that can be a potential problem. But again, for younger children in particular, they're not the ones passing on the disease to the adults. Well, hydroxychloroquine, yeah. I, I mean, that can be done. Yes, that can be used. Okay. Um, you want to, okay, we're talking about uh, we can't open our businesses, we can't go to school, and parents are scared to get treated. And I personally have put over a hundred people on hydroxychloroquine prophylaxis doctors, teachers, people, uh, healthcare workers, my staff, me. I see over 15 to 20, sometimes 20, 15, 10 patients a day. I use a surgical mask. I've not been infected. Nobody I know has been infected. That's around me. So this is the answer to this question. You want to open schools? Everybody get on hydroxychloroquine. That is the prevention for COVID. One tablet every other week is good enough. And that is what we need to get across to the American people. There is prevention and there is cure. We don't have to lock down schools. We don't have to lock down our businesses. There is prevention and there is cure. So instead of talking about masks, instead of talking about lockdowns, instead of talking about all these things, put our teachers on hydroxychloroquine. Put those that are high risk on hydroxychloroquine. Those that want it. If you want to catch COVID, that's cool. But you should be given the right to take it and be prevented. So that's the message. We don't, all this stuff that we're putting together is not necessary. Because hydroxychloroquine has a prevention. It's called hydroxychloroquine is a prevention for COVID. Earlier, I heard you say that hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, that that drug was the was the um, cure. cure. But mm -hmm. you also said measured with zinc and, and other things. Yes. And you guys also said that previous doctors have used it, but they've used it in the wrong dosage. So I keep hearing the the drug, but then what is the right dosage? What is the right? That you. Yeah, that you're gonna discuss with your. That's you're gonna discuss with your doctor. But let me yeah, let Doctor Doctor Ozo take that. Yeah, it's a, that's a great question because the fear of this drug has driven the the, uh, the 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 whole political situation has driven the fear towards this drug. So let's address that. This drug is super safe. It's safer than aspirin, Motrin, Tylenol. It's super safe. All right. So what the problem is in a lot of those studies, they did very very high doses, massive doses, all through the country. Uh, they did the Remap study, the Solidarity trial. Uh, that was the World Health Organization trial, and also the recovery trial. They used 2,400 milligrams in the first day. All you need is 200 twice a week for prophylaxis. They used massive toxic doses, and guess what they found out? When you use massive toxic doses, you get toxic results. So this moment is where I have to work really hard to meet my commitment to my audience and to new listeners to my podcast and not lose my mind and not curse and not yell, and not scream. Because this got glossed over yesterday when this came out, and you're going to hear it again. And every time you hear it, what I want you to hear, because this is what really happened, doctors intent on showing that this drug didn't work purposefully angled trials to the point where they knowingly killed 
patience, and I'm raising my voice a little bit, but I'm angry, and you're about to hear this doctor from Africa get really angry, and please understand why. You're letting, what you already heard is, they let over 70,000 people at least by estimates die who never had to die had this protocol been used early on, okay? But that's one thing, that's that we're not sure, we don't know, okay, fine. If a doctor... If a doctor had given that level of dosage to any patient in serious condition of hydroxychloroquine for any reason outside of a clinical trial, they would be held criminally liable for the death, and they should be. And just because it was inside a trial doesn't mean that they shouldn't be. 2,400 milligrams in a dose. Now, he said the dose is 200 milligrams every other week prophylactically. That means as a preventative. Okay, fine. But the dose for a patient who's being treated with the infection is a loading dose, of 400 milligrams on the first day, and then 200 milligrams a day for four days and no more. That is the therapeutic dose in all the positive studies that have come out to be done. Why would you take a patient who is at the edge of death's door in an ICU on a ventilator and give them a dose that is 12 times the therapeutic dose unless you wanted them to die? The families of those patients who were given that dose should be in touch with a lawyer already. They should be suing the people behind those decisions for everything they have and everything that they ever will have, and that's still not justice. You just heard that your medical science that is so vaulted, so respected, so appreciated, so seen as an authority, knowingly and willfully killed people, and there is no option B. If you give a patient a dose that high of this medication, you are trying to and you probably will successfully kill them. Let's go on. The drug doesn't work when you give toxic doses, okay? There are very, it's a very safe drug. It concentrates in the lungs, 200 to 700 times higher in the lungs. It's an amazing drug because in the bloodstream, you're not going to get high levels, but you get massive levels in the lungs. So you're going to find yourself, if you're prophylaxed, As soon as the virus gets there, it's going to have a hard time getting through because the, the hydroxychloroquine blocks it from getting in. And then once it gets in, it won't let the virus, it won't let it actually replicate. It actually actually bring in zinc, and zinc will mess up the copy machine called the RDRP. So with, with the combination of drugs, it's incredibly effective in the early disease. By itself, it's incredibly effective as a prophylaxis. So I hope that is that answer the question. Yeah, I... I want to emphasize on something that Dr. Urza just said because I love the question. This is a treatment regimen that's very simple, and it should be in the hands of the American people. The difficult aspect of this is that at the moment, because of politics, it's being blocked from doctors prescribing it, and it's being blocked from pharmacists releasing it. They've been empowered to overrule the doctor's opinion. Why is this not over-the-counter, as you can get it in much of the world? In almost all of Latin America, in Iran, in Indonesia, in Sub-Saharan Africa. You can just go and buy it yourself. And the dose, my friends, is 200 milligrams twice in a week and zinc daily. That's the dose. I'm in favor of it being over-the-counter. Over Give it to the people. We Give it to the people. Two more who can answer this question. and They, they know this information. Hi, everyone. I'm, uh, I'm Dr. James Tenero. I just want to add a couple comments to what Dr. Gold was saying. If it, if it seems like there is an orchestrated attack that's going on against hydroxychloroquine, it's because there is. When have you ever heard of a medication generating this degree of controversy? 
a 65-year-old medication that has been in the World Health Organization's safe, essential list of medications for years. Okay, it's over-the-counter in many countries. And what we're seeing is a lot of misinformation. So I, I co-authored the first document on hydroxychloroquine uh, as a potential treatment for coronavirus. This is back in March, and that kind of kicked off a whole series of, of a storm on it. And since then, there's been a tremendous amount of censorship on doctors like us and what we're saying. And, and a number of us have already been censored. That Google document that I co-authored was actually pulled down by Google. And this is after now many studies have shown that it is effective and it is safe. You still can't read that article. And there's also this misinformation out there. And unfortunately, this has reached the, the highest orders of medicine. Um, in May, there was a, an article published in The Lancet. So this is one of the world's most prestigious medical journals in the world. Okay? The World Health Organization stopped all their clinical trials on hydroxychloroquine because of this study. And it was independent researchers like us who care about patients, who care about the truth, that dug into the study and determined that it was actually fabricated data. The data was not real. And it was so, we did this so convincingly that this study was retracted by The Lancet less than two weeks after it was published. This is almost unheard of, especially for a study of this magnitude. So it's, you know, I apologize to, to everyone for the fact that there is so much misinformation out there and it's so hard to find the truth. And unfortunately, it's going to take looking in other places for, for the truth. It's going to be, that's why we formed uh, frontline doctors here to try to help get the, the real information out there. Uh, I'm Dr. James Tadaro. Yeah, so um, most of my thoughts I actually publish on Twitter. Um, it's, Twitter is, has been great lately, so my, my name is James Todaro, M-D-T-O-D-A-R-O, uh, M-D. But I also have a website, uh, medicineuncensored.com, which uh, contains kind of a lot of the information about hydroxychloroquine I think is, is much more objective than what's going on in other media channels. One, one point in terms so, so I'll go ahead and address that real quickly. I would say Facebook and YouTube have taken the most draconian measures to silence and censorship people. And this is coming from the CEO of YouTube as well as Mark Zuckerberg saying anything that goes against what the World Health Organization has said um, is subject to censorship. And we all know the World Health Organization has made a number of mistakes during this pandemic. They have not been perfect by any means. Twitter, although they have some flaws and faults and flag certain content and stuff, they really still remain one of the freest uh, platforms to share dialogue, intelligent discussion regarding this uh, information. And many of us here today actually co uh, connected on social platform mediums like that. Uh, just real quick, I want to point out the irony that I have to play for this for you on a podcast because Twitter took down uh, versions of this video because they considered it to be dangerous misinformation. You just heard the man defend Twitter as a reasonable platform for the exchange of ideas. And then the next day they took down the video where he defended them as a reasonable place to exchange ideas. It's, I just find that ironic. Again, you're hearing questions in between here that these doctors are responding to. I am amplifying them about as much as I can without full-on distortion, uh, but I think that even if it's hard to hear a little bit of what the questions are, it's pretty clear what they are as the doctors answer them, and let's get back to the conference. Would you would you talk about what you mentioned earlier about, about the medication and how long it's been around? Sure thing, sure thing. I'm J Dr. Joe Latipo. I'm a physician at UCLA, and I'm a clinical researcher also. And I'm speaking for myself and not on behalf of UCLA. So I, 
I want to say that, um, so I'm thinking of the people who are behind the screens that, that are watching what you guys are broadcasting. And I want to share with you, because there's, there's so much controversy and, and the atmosphere is so full of, of conflict right now, that what this group of doctors is trying to do fundamentally is really to bring more light to this conversation about how we manage COVID-19 and the, the huge challenge. And that's what this is, that's what this is ultimately about. And bringing light to something means thinking more about trade-offs, about, one of my colleagues said, um, unintended consequences. And I actually think that's not even the right, uh, that's not the right word. The right word is unanticipated consequences. Really thinking about the implications of the decisions we're making in this really, you know, really extraordinary time that we're in. So, you know, so I'm sure people are, are listening to some of the discussion about um, hydroxychloroquine and wondering, what are these doctors talking about? And, you know, these are these are doctors that take care of patients, board certified, med school, great med schools, all of that. You know, how could they possibly be saying this? You know, I watch CNN and NBC and they don't say anything about this. And, and that's actually that's the point. There's like there's um, there, there are issues that are moral issues that really there should be a singular voice, you know. So for me, you know, issues related to whether people are treated differently based on their sex or race or, you know, or or, you know, their sexual orientation. I think those are I personally think those are moral issues and there's only one position on those. But COVID-19 is not a moral issue. COVID-19 is a challenging, complex issue that we benefit from having multiple perspectives on. So it's not good for the American people when everyone is hearing one perspective on the main on the main stations. There's just there's no way that's going to serve us. So, you know, so the perspective most people have been hearing is that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, right? That's the perspective that most people have been hearing on the mainstream t- television. And I believe that perspective too until I started talking to doctors who had looked more closely, the, some of the physicians behind me here, who had looked more closely at the data and at the studies. So it is a fact that several randomized trials have come out so far. That's our highest level of evidence and have shown that hydroxychloroquine, their findings have generally been that there's no significant effect on health in those on on um, on, there's no significant health benefit. So that's a fact that the randomized controlled trials have come out so far that have come out. In fact, there were two or three big ones that came out over the last two weeks in Annals of Internal Medicine, New England Journal of Medicine, and I think uh, one other journal. It is also a fact that there have been several observational studies. So these are just not randomized controlled trials, but patients who are getting treated with this medication that have found that hydroxychloroquine improves outcomes. So both of those things are true. So there's evidence against it and there's evidence for it. It is also a fact that we are in an extraordinarily challenging time. So given those, given those considerations, how can the right answer be to limit, how can the right answer be to limit physician's use of the medication? Yeah, let me rephrase that for you. When is it proper for a non-medically trained politician or bureaucrat 
to tell a medically trained doctor whether or not it is acceptable for them to prescribe a generally recognized as safe medication which is cheap and highly available to their patients because they think it's warranted. When is And the answer to that, if you are any sort of free-thinking, fair-minded, logical individual that can separate this issue from Donald Trump, and Donald Trump should have nothing to do with this issue, whether he thinks it's good, bad, or indifferent, should have nothing to do with your opinion based on science, logic, and reason. The answer to that question is never. It should never be acceptable that a politician or a bureaucrat without medical training should be able to tell a doctor whether or not they can prescribe a medication, especially a medication that's been around for six decades and generally is recognized as safe. It is so safe that there is really only one group of patients specifically singled out as who should not take it. That is people with psoriasis, full stop. That is according to the World World Health Organization, the authority that is constantly appealed to by the talking heads in the media. It, no one in the media right now, I will say no one I know of, is doing their job as a journalist. If you are anything approaching a journalist right now, you should be all over this story. Even if you disagree with these doctors, you should be all, why aren't they being heard? Why don't we talk about this? Why, don't we, why is a doctor prohibited from prescribing a medication? Why have governors gone out of their way to make it impossible for a doctor to prescribe a six-decade-old medication? Why? Why? There is no good answer to that question. The only answers to that question that make any sense are horrific to even think of. I'll let you answer them for yourselves. Do you think, though, that your doctor that you go to should be prohibited from prescribing a medication to you as safe as hydroxychloroquine if your doctor feels that you should have it. And if your answer to that is no, then you should be outraged by what's been going on. Back to the conference. It, that, that can't possibly be the right answer. And when you consider that this medication before COVID-19 had been used for decades, right, by patients with rheumatoid arthritis, by patients with lupus, by patients with other conditions, by pa patients who needed, you know, who were traveling to West Africa and needed malaria prophylaxis, They've, we've been using it for a long time. But all of a sudden, it's, it's elevated to this area of looking like some poisonous drug. That, that just doesn't make sense. And, and then when you add on to that the fact that we've had two of the biggest journals in the world, New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet, as my colleagues say, retract studies that found, interestingly, that hydroxychloroquine harmed patients, right? Both of these studies. And they had to retract these studies, which really is unheard of. That's, that should raise everyone's concern about what is going on. So at the very least, we can live in a world where there are differences of opinion about the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine, but still allow more data to come, you know, still allow physicians who feel like they have expertise with it, use, their, use that medication, and still, you know, talk and learn and, and get better at helping people with COVID-19. So, so why we're not there is, is, not, is not good, doesn't make sense, and we need to get out of there. Indeed, and you can hear that man's frustration. He wants to say more about why. And I think they've already stuck their necks out far enough. And, and so I'll say it for them. I believe there are people willing to watch Americans die so that they can be right. I believe there are people willing to watch Americans die so that they can win. I believe that these studies were intentionally flawed from the very beginning. I believe that if a person like me, 
a person who calls himself a redneck hippie duck farmer, a person who is a professional podcaster for God's sake, could have told you in March that this medication must be used early, it must be used with zinc, okay? If I could tell you that in March, and then every single study that they've done, that they've publicized anyway, everyone they've actually given that gold standard of being randomized, you know, double-blind and peer-reviewed, every one of them, they have purposefully given the drug late in the illness without zinc, and in many cases, this is one of the big things I learned from this, in excess, at toxic levels. It is criminal, and you should be outraged. And even if these doctors are wrong, you should still be outraged. Because what's not subject to debate is exactly that. That was done. These people were given the medication at the wrong time, in the wrong dosage, without the zinc that was necessary for protection of the lungs and the immune system. And every doctor that came out with this early and said, this works, said, this is how to use it. And they purposefully designed everything they did to be the exact opposite of that. To be able to say, well, we tried it. We tried it at toxic levels and people near death and it didn't work. Imagine if you took this approach with cancer. What is the most important thing you can do for a person who has a cancer? Catch it early. And we now have things that we could accurately describe as a cure for cancer. There is no cure for cancer, but there's a cure for some cancers caught at the right time. And the way I define a cure is the person has a disease that would otherwise be fatal, and we treat them, and then they live, and they no longer have the disease at a detectable level. I think most people at any rational level would define that as a cure. So imagine you have a patient. We'll call him John. John goes to his doctor. He gets screened. He, they find that John has a cancer that can become extremely lethal and almost impossible to treat. However, they've caught it early, and they have a new treatment, and they give John that treatment, and John lives. You call that a cure. If you were to then take that treatment and test it on John eight months into his illness, when his body begins to waste away with advanced stage cancer, and then look at people and tell people, it's not a cure, it doesn't work, we treated it, and we treated John and he died anyway. Anybody with half a brain and the sense the good Lord gave to a goose would say that is an intentionally flawed study. I defy anyone listening to this anywhere in the world to explain to me how what has been done here is any different. Now back to the conference and once again to hear from my new hero. I think this woman is about to be a rock star. And uh, man, just you're about to get some fire right here and fire that we need, cleansing fire. Um, listen, let me just put a little bit of that. I have seen 350 patients and counting put them on hydroxychloroquine, they all got better. This is what I would say to all those studies. They had high doses, they were giving the wrong patients. I would call them fake science. Any study that says hydroxychloroquine doesn't work is fake science. And I want them to show me how it doesn't work. How is it going to work for 350 patients for me and they are all alive? And then somebody say it doesn't work. Guys, all them studies, fake science. What was your question? Thank you. Last question. question. And that's where we'll wrap from the video. There is a little bit more of the video, and since I've eliminated that, just as I eliminated the congressman at the beginning, I will give you full disclosure of what I eliminated. If you go watch the video yourself, I'll have a link in the show notes for today on my website if you want to check it out. But uh, there's a lady there that is a, a BLM activist, and I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent about BLM here, but that's what she is. And her entire agenda through this whole thing as she tries to provoke answers is to get these doctors to go on record stating that we should redirect funding. Um, and 
That really has nothing to do with the debate. So I decided that you didn't need to hear it. And if you want to hear it, I'm not censoring it. You can go listen to it. I have located a full copy of this video end-to-end -end on a service that will not censor it. And you can watch it if you want to. I wanted to bring to you, um, as a journalist today, the parts of the video that were actually about the illness itself. And, and that's what I've tried to do. And I want to ask you again. I want to ask you again. Do you want to live in a world where people like this with these concerns, with medical degrees, take their findings and bring them to the public in the public light and seek only to have their argument heard, be silenced. You should take, I, I, I know this is hard in our day and age, and I, I'm really imploring you, right? And some of you that are new to, to, to me, you may not even understand how big a thing this is for me, but I'm imploring you to take politics out of this. Whatever your feelings are about Donald Trump, positive or negative, should have nothing to do with how you feel about this. This is a logical thing to look at. Does a medication that we've used for 60 years, that we use 67,000 doses a day of, within VA alone, that's not veterans, or I'm sorry, that's not active duty soldiers you know, using it for malaria prevention. This is Department of VA. So when a soldier is no longer in the military, they have insurance through VA, and they have lupus, or they have RA, or they have another um, uh, uh, illness that, that responds well to uh, hydroxychloroquine. That, that one place, just VA, uses 67,000 doses of this stuff a day. And the TV is talking to you like it is some sort of advanced radical chemotherapy that we just found yesterday. I'm telling you personally, I took this medication for six months while deployed to Honduras. Why? Because there's mosquitoes in Honduras that carry malaria, and malaria sucks. I'm telling you my, my only side effect from taking it for six months was I didn't get malaria. That was the only side effect that I experienced. I'm telling you that all of the discussions of side effects of this medication are when it was used experimentally at very high doses that no sane doctor would prescribe. I'm telling you there are three mechanisms by which this helps resist the COVID SARS-2 virus and protect the lungs. I'm telling you there are multiple videos by these doctors that have not been taken down because no one was so as bold in them as the doctor you heard from today to state that hydroxychloroquine is a cure for COVID SARS-2, COVID-19. Because they didn't come out and completely state that, those videos were allowed to remain up. That one claim is the justification that these technocrat platforms used to remove that video so that you would not hear it and you would not see it. Is there anything that you heard today? No matter how you feel about this issue, no matter what side you come down, whether you're pro-mask or anti-mask, pro-lockdown or anti-lock, is there anything you heard today that you would recognize is so dangerous Then rather debate it in a healthy public debate, it must be silenced? And if you feel that way, what is wrong with you? How are you going to feel when somebody decides that the things that are important to you need to be silenced instead of debated. Do you live in a free country where this can be shut down? Do you live in a free country when a man like me who makes his living speaking to the American public the way that I do, knowingly must risk his profession, must risk his career, must risk his income, must risk the ability to feed his family and pay his bills, that that's what I have to do to bring this to you today? That I have to willingly risk my livelihood to simply bring you what doctors said? We have heard since 
February. When this started, what? Over and over and over and over again. Listen to the doctors. Listen to the doctors. Listen to the doctors. But what you're hearing now is, not those doctors, not those doctors. Listen to the experts, not those experts. Listen to the scientists, not those scientists. There is a study that I will link for you from the show notes to this show at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Look up this episode. From 2005, saying that hydroxychloroquine works on the treatment and prevention of coronavirus. From 2005. I wasn't able to come out and tell people in March this worked and how this worked and why this worked, and how it could be used properly. I wasn't able to do that because I'm a virologist. I wasn't able to do that because I'm an MD, or a PhD, or a DSC. I wasn't able to do that because I'm a genius. I was able to do that because the data for it already existed. So ask yourself why they deny the existence of the data that they themselves created. I'm not a conspiracy person. I'm not a conspiracy person. I'm not. Uh, you might think with a name like the Survival Podcast that we were all over the Tin Hat conspiracy stuff here. We're not. I've lost a lot of listeners over the years because all of these crazy conspiracies, I refuse to go down into those rabbit holes. I find most of them to be ridiculous. I'm not sitting here telling you, oh, this is a 5G bioweapon or some nonsense like that because I actually worked in wireless technology for most of my career before I did this. And I understand how radio frequency and light waves work. Okay. I'm not here telling you all about some kind of crazy inside inner circle ring, but I do know human motivation. And I do know that we have corporations working with the government with a guaranteed payday that is in the trillions of dollars for a vaccine that's probably not necessary. And I want you to think about how many times you've heard the story about somebody that was shot or stabbed for a couple hundred dollars. And if men will sh lie, cheat, shoot people, stab people, beat people, For a couple hundred dollars, what will they do for a couple billion or a couple trillion dollars? Is that what's going on here? I don't know. I'm not one of these people that pretends to know things I do not know. I'm not one of these people that tends to give you an opinion as though it's a fact. I absolutely believe, based on all the data and all the science, that hydroxychloroquine absolutely is a cure for COVID-SARS-2 if given to the, to the patient at the right time with the right additional things, which must include, you know, the zithromycin, maybe. That really helps the patient that still progresses in symptoms anyway because it treats secondary infections. But I'm not huge on the overuse of antibiotics myself. But the data on the use of zinc and the protective axis of hydroxychloroquine along with the viral replication impeding actions of zinc and the ionophore action, which means that hydroxychloroquine gets the zinc in the cells, is almost irrefutable. It's still an opinion. With all the data I have, with all the knowledge I have, with all the examples we have, it's still an opinion. But here's my big point. All the people telling you it doesn't work, it's also an opinion. The way we rectify a, 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 a disagreement in opinion in science is to hash it out. We work it out by each side being free to 100% freely present their data to make whatever claim that they want. And if the other side disagrees with the claim, it is up to them to use data and results and testing and science to disprove it, not to be able to use an off switch. I left that silence for you for a reason. Do you want that to be your future? Do you want that to be the future for people like me who dare speak their mind? Do you? Do you want this to be the way that we... 
handle disagreements in America. An off switch, a mute button, a memory hole, as though it never happened. Do you? America, this is a place where you need to make a choice independent of any political party or affiliation or lack thereof. I don't care if you're a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, a Voluntarist, an Agorist. I don't care if you're a political agnostic. This is a point where you understand that the apparatus of our government is actually influenced by the people and more by our opinion and our anger and our outrage than by the results of an election. Most of these clowns know in the next election, no matter what happens, they're safe and they don't care. And most of these clowns in Congress, if they do lose their seat, they're going to go get a job as a lobbyist and they're going to make even more money. But you know what? Being a senator or a member of the House of Representatives is a pretty good gig, and these people don't want to lose that good gig. Burn down the phone lines. You have watched lunatics burning down our cities for other reasons that we'll leave out of today's show. I want you to burn down the phone lines. I want you to call your senators. I want you to call your congressmen. And long-term listeners to this show know that I am being honest when I tell you it's been at least eight years since I've used those words. I am not someone that generally uses the political machine. And I also understand this. And your people that rule you, they don't lead you, they rule you because you let them. Because you willingly let them. Those people, those people understand that you can only be angry about one thing at a time effectively. That if they divide your attention between two things, they can get away with anything. Right now is not the time to have divided attention. Right now, you have one thing to focus on, and it ain't hydroxychloroquine. It's the right of people to speak and be heard freely and for this issue to be hashed out. When you call your senators... Why don't you tell them that maybe they should have Senate hearings and bring these people in and let them speak to the American people in full. Let them present their findings. And let the other side present their findings. And let's look at this for real. Let's not just pretend it's not there. Because this is killing people, in my opinion. But if I'm wrong, let's end it. Let's end it fairly, though. If you show me the data that proves me wrong, I will come back and I will tell you I was wrong. But I will never tell you that I was wrong for defending the right of these people to speak and to be heard. And I'll just simply ask you one more time. Do you want to live in a world where the solution to what we disagree with is...